Hi folks, welcome to Fig Tree Ministries. As we hear it, Fig Tree Ministries are just starting out in this whole digital biblical education ministry. One way you can help us grow is through sharing our videos or the podcast format with your community through your favorite social media channel. If you've been impacted by one of our lessons, then it's likely that others just like you will be impacted in the same way. Our goal here is to help people gain a deeper understanding of the Bible and their spiritual growth walk by exploring the cultural context within which Scripture was written. And we find so often that something little in the culture can illuminate what was being said or written so many years ago. So we ask you, as you gain insight into the biblical text, that you would share with others and help them progress down what is often a difficult path of understanding their Bible and how to apply it to our lives today. So we bless you all for the support that you've given us and your efforts in helping us grow our ministry. And we hope that you enjoy today's lesson. Okay, good morning, everybody. Share my screen here. We're still on the Sea of Galilee. And of course, this one story that we're in is going to last us at least another week next week. Perhaps there's some things we'll talk about the week following that. And I hope that this one particular story, so it's going to the other side of the lake, the pagan side of the lake that we looked at last week, and then all the events, the symbolism that's going on, I hope that it at least illustrates to you how deep and rich the biblical stories are. And as people say, the divine author does not waste ink. So every sentence means something. It carries something very deep and profound. What's bizarre about it is we can apply it 2,000 years later to our lives in a way that manifests goodness in the world. It's remarkable. And today, God willing, we'll look at another one of those things that's going on in the story. It's often difficult to see that it's going on, that when we can apply that to our lives, the result is the manifestation of goodness, which I think, if you've looked out your window lately at the world, I think the world could need some goodness. So this will be part three of I don't know how many parts. All right, so today, um, if you want to open your Bible to Mark, it's Mark 4, starting at verse 35. That ends the chapter of Mark. That's where Jesus stilled the sea, and we looked at that last week. The one we read last week was out of Luke. Today, we'll read it out of Mark. Mark 4:35 to 41 is the stilling of the sea as they're going across the lake and then we'll we're not going to read it but we'll talk about some of the things that are happening now starting in Mark 5 because the very next story is Jesus is going across to the pagan side of the lake and he's going to heal the demon possessed man so we won't read the whole thing but between this week and next week it's a good idea to go back and review this story because next week will be some details that are going to be encompassed in, the, in last week's teaching and then today. So we have a little bit of homework, should you choose to do it. 
homework in this class is kind of like doing push-ups or sit-up. It's only going to help you if you actually do them. So it will help you if you read through it, although it's not required. But if you read through it by next week, you'll see some of the things that we talk about next week that will show up. Okay, main points for today. Number one on your sheet, main points. We're going to talk a little bit about the Decapolis and the use of euphemisms in a sense. Well, not in a sense, the use of euphemisms as other names for the Decapolis. We'll talk about why that is and see how that shows up in the text. So the Decapolis we'll discuss because that's where they're going. That's point one. We'll talk about Psalm 107, because if you read any scholarly writing on this, the part about the stilling of the sea, they will point you back to Psalm 107. Last week we looked at Psalm 89, but Psalm 107 is more central. And then we'll finish up today with one explanation for a word that's very difficult in our text. We, scholars still have difficulty today discerning what Mark is saying, Mark, Matthew, and Luke. And I'm going to give you one suggestion. We don't know if it's exactly the right one, but I think there's some evidence that this might be the, the point we should be, or the direction we should be going, and so I'll present that to you. And it will make sense under the Decapolis and other names as well. All right, so that's what we're doing today, the three things. So as a way of review, last week we talked only about the sea and all of the symbolism that goes along with that. The week before that, we talked about how the, the area around the Sea of Galilee is, was segregated. And interestingly enough, it still is today. There are cities around that. I don't know, so you, you might not know this, but 25% of Israeli citizens are Arab. They're not Jewish. 25% are Arab. So around the Sea of Galilee today, you'll have a Jewish town, all Jewish, and you'll have an Arab town, all Arab. And they generally do not mix a lot. So even today, you can have some segregation within the areas around the Sea of Galilee. Today, it's Arab and, and Jews. But 25% of the uh, Israeli population is Arab, and they vote in the in the elections, and they serve in the Congress and all of that. So uh, people are usually surprised to hear that large amount. Okay, anyways, the first week we talked about this. this. This picture right here, looking at the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee, was taken from a place called Mount Arbel. Stands out like that ship rock above the, above the sea. Prominent geographical feature. So Mount Arbel, in this northwest corner, this is where Jesus did Almost his entire ministry, the Bible says most of his miracles happened in Chorazin, Capernaum, and Bethsaida. So this is where the majority of his ministry is, that northwest corner. To the south here, we have the Herodians. Those are people who supported Herod and Roman power. And we'll talk, God willing, more about that in the future. Because when, when the Bible says they wanted to make Jesus king, you have to realize Herod wants to be king, and Herod's not going to be real happy. At one point in the Bible, the Pharisees come to Jesus and say, the Herodians want to kill you. Yep, because if the people want to force Jesus to become the king, that means Herod isn't, and 
Of course, people in power don't like to be overthrown. Um, okay, Herodians. Across the lake, straight across, you get Decapolis. That's the ten cities, and those are the pagan cities. We'll talk about them today. And the last place, that northeast corner, the area that's now in Herod Philip, uh, Herod Antipas's brother, Gamla, is the headquarters for the movement called the Zealots. So that's gener our general scheme of how we're talking about the Sea of Galilee. So last week, we looked at the sea. This picture was taken as the sun was rising, looking to the east. So you're looking at the area that would have been the Decapolis, that those fishermen are going out to catch tilapia in the morning. So this is the sea. And we went through all of that symbolism. It goes way back, not only in your Bible, but in the ancient Near East, the way that they talk about the world and the cosmos, sea becomes this really important symbol. So the sea is the abyss. It's the entrance to the underworld. It's the, the watery darkness of the world underneath. And anywhere you find an opening to the, in the, the earth, well, that's the entrance to the underworld. And many gods or goddesses lived in the underworld and would come out and fertilize the earth with their rain and then go back under, kind of like in San Diego, it rains in the winter and then suddenly it shut off. They would say, ah, the god went back under the earth. So the, it's, the sea is the abyss. It's the enemy of God. So you always see the imagery that's in the Old Testament is that you have this, the forces of chaos are represented as the sea, and they're going after the order that God creates. So storms coming in disrupt the order of the land. We still react that way to storms. And so there's something very deeply embedded within human beings that have the same type of react, visceral reaction to chaos as these ancient people did. They just put it into the mythology of these forces of chaos. And then the last thing we said was, well, who has authority over the chaos? God does. He's the sole creator. And so if you find chaos in the world, you'd say, well, God must have created these forces as well. And oh, by the way, he has authority over them. That's Genesis 1 and the creation of the sea monster. And it's Isaiah where God says, I created both good and evil. Because you don't have two competing gods where one could be overthrown. You have one God that created the world, and he's not going to be overthrown. He has authority over chaos, which means if you find yourself in chaos, who do you cry out to? Well, cry out to God, because he's the one who has authority over the chaos. So that was all last week. So we noted last week then that Jesus started on this side of the lake where the religious Jews are, and then he says, okay, guys, Let's go to the other side, and we'll talk more about that, the other side. The other side of what? Well, it's the other side of a lot of things, but it's the other side of the lake. And he says, let's go to the other side of the lake, and they know exactly what he's talking about. And they, they go to the area which we call the Decapolis, or where the pagans live. And the assumption is he's landing somewhere near that town called Hippos. So it's going to be somewhere along where that circle is. And one of the main problems we have with our text, as we'll talk about today, is you can see inside that circle is a little village 
that the the map has labeled Gergesa, but it's got a question mark. And anytime you see, you know, if you look at a map uh, of the Middle East, it, there's, it'll say Mount Sinai and then a question mark. And that means, well, we don't, we're not really sure where Mount Sinai is, but maybe we say it's here. So that little town, Gergesa, we'll talk about, very small village called Kersey today, but it's got a question mark. So they land somewhere over here because that main Decapolis city called Hippos would be right on that side of the lake. So if we look over, this is not the greatest picture, but you're looking across the lake, you see the cliffs, just like, you know, the lake sits below um, the cliffs on all sides. So this is looking across at the area called the Decapolis. And if you go there, you'd end up one of the major city, the polis, is Hippos. So here our group is standing in the theater at Hippos, amazing Greek city, where you put your theater right in the best real estate because that's how you're going to attract the world to Hellenism, to your worldview, is you make it attractive to everybody. This city is called Hippos. Hippos means horse. In Aramaic, it's called Susita. Susita means mare. Why do they call it that? Well, this is what it looks like from the side. So this hill, the, the city of Hippos, is built on a hill that looks like a horse's back. And so it's a long, extended city that runs along a very narrow ridgeline leading, that kind of runs downhill towards the Sea of Galilee. Here's another picture of it, of the marketplace there at Hippos. And where this yellow circle is, that's that theater that we were standing in. So right on the edge as it, about, as it drops off into the Sea of Galilee. So this is the main city. And this city, because it's Decapolis, it was a loose um, group of cities that governed themselves. If you land in this area, you'd be in the area of Hippos. So when we get to the word Gergesa, or the Gergesa Gerasenes, then we have to ask, where are they getting that name from? Okay, uh, so let's talk. Let's now talk about the Decapolis. So this is number three on your sheet. And this is going to be one of the main points today. So the Decapolis, to the religious Jews that lived over on that northwest corner, the Decapolis is unclean. It's the place you don't want your kids to go. Wherever that is. It's unclean. Well, we'll look at a whole bunch of reasons why they consider it unclean. But it's the attractiveness of the world that calls out to you to try whatever this is. Or what, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Not true. That doesn't, well, as we've said before, your money stays in Vegas, but there are some things that would come home with you if they happened in Vegas. So Decapolis is unclean. This is at least how, they, how we would talk about it. Now, it's hyperbole, but it gets you to, to stay away from a place that's not going to do you any good. To say the word Decapolis, you would have unclean lips. So Decapolis is considered a dirty word, and we have to be careful. Sometimes we, we make these judgments about things that are in the Bible. All Jews think this. It's like, no, not all Jews think that. Just like in any group, even within Christians, some think 
think one way, some think other ways, some are more stringent, some are more lenient. But the idea of the Decapolis being unclean or you having unclean lips, that it's a dirty word, it's hyperbole. It gets, it gets your attention to say, don't go there. Stay away. So it's, they're not ignorant and, and they understand that it's not technically unclean, but it's the idea that you want to stay away from that place. So, and this is going to play into next week because we have to watch the actions of the disciples next week and relating to the Decapolis. Now, again, we have to be really careful because we do the same thing, right? We have words that are unclean. You have words that if your children say them, they're not, that's a dirty word. Well, is it literally a dirty word? So this picture right here is from the, the movie A Christmas Story, and that's Ralphie. And Ralphie said a dirty word. Now, what happens when you're, you say a dirty word? Well, notice that we're, it's like we're nested inside of the metaphor of clean and unclean. So even today, we have that whole metaphor that we kind of live in, right? And so this is depicting, hey, Ralphie, you said a dirty word. That's the metaphor. And so in order to rectify the dirty word, what do we do? Soap. We put soap in your mouth. Now, does the soap literally clean you out? No, it's the metaphor for a dirty word. So um, we have the same thing with our churches. You know, there are things you can say in the church and things you can't say in the church. So we find this everywhere. It's, it's part of, you know, human beings have a disgust reflex. The disgust reflex is anything that we recognize as dirty, unclean. I mean, we have countries in the world today where people view other people as unclean, untouchables. We have, in politics, people are disgusted by a different viewpoint. It's a disgust mechanism, so that when we view others through a disgust mechanism, we tend to put a distance between them, we diminish their humanity, and we make them other. And then making them other is really easy to do bad things to them, because they no longer exist in the, the realm of a real human being. That's all of our disgust reflex. I remember even at Ohio State, if it was Ohio State-Michigan weekend and a Michigan person showed up on campus, which is like your little sanctuary that you have to keep holy, and they show up with their Michigan jersey, watch out, because Ohio State fans are not nice to you if you've got the, your competing team. And I know there are other NFL teams. You don't want to go in that stadium with the opposing team's jersey because something will get thrown at you. Anyways, we all live with this. Anywhere you find human beings, you'll find disgust sensitivity. So the Decapolis is one of those things to the religious Jews. So if you don't want to use the word Decapolis, you come up with a euphemism. And everybody understands the euphemism. You don't say the word because it's a dirty word. And so you might say something like this, let's go to the other side. And that's all you have to say. And you know exactly what they're talking about because it's the other side. It's the other side of everything besides the other side of the lake. Also, as we'll see later when we finish today, there's an idea of a, a word that means the driven out ones. Who lives over there? The driven out ones. You don't say who they are because you can't say the word. You'll, it'll make you unclean. You don't step in the Decapolis. You'll be unclean. We'll see that next week.
We just have to be careful not to be too judgmental because we do the same thing. But let me show you one example. So another people group besides Decapolis that was unclean or considered to be less than human beings were Samaritan. And even in Jesus' day, there were certain people who thought, nope, Samaritans are not fully in the image of God. They're less than. So you can hate them if you want. Let me show you an example. Now, the example comes from, I just want to make sure we all understand where I'm getting this example from, the Apocrypha. So I, I actually put this quote on your sheet because you probably don't have an Apocrypha sitting in front of you. If you have a Catholic Bible, you can go inside a Catholic Bible and find this because the Apocrypha is included in the Catholic Bible. And there you can buy a Bible with the Apocrypha included. But it comes from a writing called Sirach, or in the Catholic Bible, Ecclesiasticus. And he's going to be talking about the Samaritans, but he's never going to say the name Samaritan. But watch how the author here depicts the Samaritans. So this is on your sheet of verse 25. So if you Google Sirach 50, 25, and 26, you'll find this on a Bible software somewhere. But notice how he starts. Two souls, or two souls, two nations my soul detests. Well, that's nice. It's a nice way to start out. There are two nations that my soul detests. A third that's not even a people. So they're not even a people group. Now, who are these, right? Now, you can tell this is written in like a Hebrew poetic style. So you're going to say two nations, then a third. Now we're going to list the two nations. Those who, who live in Seir, I put in is, boy, that's my fault, and the Philistines. So he names two people groups. And then he says this, and the foolish people that live in Shechem. Well, who lives in Shechem? That's the Samaritans. So, you know, read the parable that we call the Good Samaritan. That parable is about who's your neighbor. Define for me who the neighbor is. Jesus tells the parable, includes a Samaritan, which everybody hated. Then he says to the, to the man he's giving the parable to, now which one was your neighbor or was the neighbor? And the guy won't even say the word Samaritan. He says, the one who helped him. Now, why won't he say Samaritan? Because you don't say the word Samaritan. It's a, it's a dirty word. Okay. My point is, when we go to the Decapolis, there's, there's already evidence of using different terms, euphemisms, to talk about things. The rabbis love to do this, to change little details of words, to talk about stuff in a way that's more euphemistic. So we get to the Decapolis, the euphemism, the euphemisms, the other side, we'll see later, the driven out ones. Okay, so look in your Bible, if you have Mark 35 open, Mark 35, Mark 4, verse 35, so here's how Jesus starts out. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you Mark, and then I'm going to show you what Luke does, because Luke adds the detail of the lake. Uh, Luke is a little, he's not as confident with his geography, and his audience might not understand what Jesus is saying. So Mark 4.35 starts out like this. Let us go over to the other side. And so there scholars, particularly scholars in the land of Israel, Say, aha, he's not saying the Decapolis. He's giving you, he's giving you the, the, the euphemism for where they're going. 
So let's go over to the other side. Now, if we went to Luke, and don't turn there, but let me just show you, Luke 8.22 says this, One day Jesus said to the disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. And so Luke, writing after Mark, includes the detail of the lake, because now he's being more explanatory. That's fairly normal for people who are copying to add something to, be, to help you understand what's going on. But in Mark, it's let's go to the other side. So now you have to ask, well, what does that mean? Well, there's got, it's got all kinds of meanings. It's layered meaning. It's not just that other side of the lake, because that's the Decapolis. That's the place that's unclean. Why are they unclean? Well, we, let's do a little comparison. So, and, and think, of, think of even the struggles today of Christian parents, right? When, when you're raising a child, what do Christian parents want to do for their child? They want to protect them from the attractiveness of the world around them that can lead you astray. And you have the same issue in the first century with the Decapolis right across the lake. So if we're on the religious Jewish side, well, you have every village there. The focus is God. It's God's word, the Torah, the first five books. The focus of every village in, in the Galilee on that side of the lake is the synagogue. Everything gets poured into the synagogue. That's the central place, kind of like our small towns in America. The central place of the small town used to be the church. You place God in the center of your, in the midst of you. It's, it's all about modesty. It's about community. It's about that everybody's made in the image of God. So that's on one side of the lake. Well, what's, what if we go to the other side? You get the Decapolis, right? Well, the Decapolis, well, they have all kinds of gods. There's many gods over there. In fact, they found at Hippos, they found a shrine to the pan god, or the god Pan. Pan is a fertility god, and it's a disgusting fertility god. And all the worship happens in caves at night. And you know, you know, just inherently, if anything's happening in a cave at night, it's probably not good. So you don't want your kids going over when Pan's being worshipped at his festival. And it's all about sexuality. In the Hellenistic cities, you did sport in the nude because the human being. The human body is the epitome of beauty, so why put clothes on it? Take the clothes off. Let's, let's celebrate the human body and worship a human body that looks more attractive than the next. That's the Hellenistic way of doing things. So Hellenism is all about me. It's, I deserve a break today. I'm number one. I did it my way. That's a Hellenistic world. And so what, do you, what happens when you get a people group that are selfishly all about them compared to a group that's all about community. Well, what you get is you, all the bad things that happen, right? So one of, the, one of the things that happens in the Hellenistic world that's just like our world today is certain people carry more value than somebody else. And this is the world we live in. We value other human beings on things that are nonsense. Oh, you're, you're attractive? Well, then we should listen to you or your ideas. You're better looking, you're more intelligent, then you must be a better person. I mean, some of the most ludicrous ones, uh, you can play a game really well, you can throw a football really well, so we must, our society should reward you by paying you millions of dollars. And that's a Hellenistic society. You value certain people groups, and there's always a 
cost to doing that. And so what we see when Jesus goes to the other side of the lake, who does he meet? A crazy man who lives in the tombs, in the caves. And he's shunned by society. No one will go near him. No one wants to touch him. No one wants to talk to him. And so part of the story is breaking down the barriers where Jesus walks over and obviously has an interaction that, okay, we'll look at that next week. You get my point. It's not just the other side. It's not just the other side of the lake. It's the other side of everything. So when Jesus says that, the disciples are, have, are saying, we're going where? Right? I was always told I'm not allowed to go there. Why are we going? Why are you taking the church van and taking us there? Because that's where someone's in need. So, okay, that's the other side. Let's keep going. Now, we're going to read a little bit. Mark 4, we're going to look at verse 37 to 39. And the next thing we need to do is tie in one more psalm because it's, this is just, it's brilliant what's happening. Okay, so Mark 4, 37 to 39. We read this last week in Luke, so it's the same story. You're familiar with it. Verse 37, a furious squall came up. It's a windstorm, wind, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Verse 38, Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. God willing, we'll address that in a couple weeks. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Verse 39, Jesus got up. He rebuked the wind and the waves. Be quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. Now we looked at this whole thing last week. Who has authority over the chaos? That storm that's rising up to try to stop the good news from going to the pagans. And of course, God has authority and the authority is being passed down to his son. So we could say, aha, Jesus is the son of God because we see what he does and only God controls the chaos of the, of the storm. So last week I showed you Psalm 89, but this week I'm going to show you a different psalm because it's probably more nested in this psalm right here. So turn, if you would, to Psalm 107. Psalm 107 is a psalm of those who have been redeemed. It's like Psalm 107 is happening to the disciples on the lake. So watch how this reads. So starting at verse 23, and just what I'm going to do is I want you to see by the end how so much of what happens, it's not perfectly in following the Psalms, but watch how much is happening inside Psalm 107 that then happens out on that lake. So verse 23, some went out on the sea in ships. They were merchants of mighty waters. So we have people out on the sea. That's the disciples and Jesus. They saw the works of the Lord, his wonderful deeds in the deep. Verse 25, for he spoke and stirred up a tempest that lifted the waves. Now tempest there is a windstorm. So it's a squall that showed up and they lifted up the waves. That's exactly what's being told to us in, in Mark. The waves, they mounted up to the heavens and went down to the depths. In their peril, their courage melted away. What happened to the disciples? Yeah, their storm is coming and their courage melts away. They reeled and staggered like drunkards. They were at their wit's end. Verse 28, 
Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of the distress. Do the disciples cry out to Jesus? Yep. And then verse 29, and here's really the key verse. He stilled the storm to a whisper, the waves of the sea he hushed. And that's exactly what Jesus does. And I just wanted to show you that beyond Psalm 89, which we looked at last week, this psalm has so many more details that are actually happening out on that lake. Really cool to see how that Old Testament is being basically relived for the disciples. Then as they, as they recount the story, Psalm 107 is no doubt in their mind because they don't have a New Testament yet. Everything's all about the biblical text. So, okay, I just wanted to add one more piece to that. Now, I'm switching gears again. I kind of put that Psalm 107 in. It's a little bit out of place, but it follows our, our line of text. So, all right, last bit, last bit. This is going to go back to our idea of the uh, Decapolis and using a euphemistic phrase. So, there's a suggestion, or at least it will it'll often be noted in a commentary that there's a possibility that the word that Mark is using means, has a meaning, the driven out ones, the, the ones who were driven out, that's who lives in the Decapolis. Now, where would they even get that? Well, let's go take a look. So now we're down, we're done with the stilling of the storm. Look at Mark 5, verse 1. And this is where all the trouble comes in. So Mark 5, verse 1, says, They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. Now, where, is the, where are the Gerasenes? And what's the region of the Gerasenes? And I want everyone to notice that in your Bible, as in this one, you probably have a footnote. So your Bible will say, ah, check out footnote number A for this verse. And then if you check out the footnote, it says something like this. Mark 5.1, some manuscripts say Gadarenes. Other manuscripts say Gergesenes. And so we have a problem. And this is a known issue with how do we translate what Mark has put down in the Greek. And you can see, as the Bible, you have the original writing of Mark, which we don't have any longer, but as it gets copied and copied and copied, different scribes will then put insert one of these three words, because they're thinking, ah, it must mean, something, it must mean this, and so maybe there was a scribal error, and we're going to correct it. So the question that everybody has is, what does that mean, Gerasenes? What's the region of the Gerasenes? Well, let me show you the thought process here. So we don't know. We don't know what Gerasenes, what Mark is actually talking about. There's two cities that will always be mentioned in, in commentaries, and I'll show you on a map where they are. The first one is Gerasa, Ger, uh, it might be Gerasha. We would say Gerasa. That's one city. You have Gadara. That's another city. So you could see where someone said, hey, maybe it's the Gadarenes. And then we notice there's a small village today. It's called Kersi. And people will label it Gergesa, but it's Gergesa with a question mark because we don't really know if that was the name of a village. And why would they call the 
name the area after a really tiny village. It's not likely. So let me just take you geographically, just show you what some of the, where these cities are, and then some of the arguments to why it probably doesn't apply. So right here, you see in the middle of the map, you see the Sea of Galilee, right where I put that red X. Now, the very first city is called Gerasa, and it's 40 miles away. Now, this raises a problem, because if you have people from that region that are herding pigs, do you herd pigs over the 40 miles? Not likely. So, Gerasa is a little bit too far away. The next city right here is called Gadara. So, Gadara, well, again, you have the same issue. It's six miles away, and you probably wouldn't herd pigs over six miles. Plus, there's a huge wadi that divides Gadara and the places to the north. So, Gadara is one. And then right here, you'll see Gergesa, and that's the one that you put a question mark next to because we're, we're kind of trying to figure out what city is Mark talking about. That's our three choices. If we go closer, Gadara is down here, because now that one is too far away. 40 miles is too far away. That's Gadara. Then you have, our, that's our main city, Hippos. If he's near Hippos, then you would name it, you would name, you would call the region after the name Hippos, if that's what he's talking about. And then the last one is Gergesa. And that's the question mark, because we're not really sure, is that an actual city, or are we thinking that it's a city? So it's a real problem. We don't really know. But I want to offer you up one other solution to the problem. The reason that it might work is the idea of calling an area by a euphemistic name. Okay? So if, if here's our name, Jesus is in Capernaum, they come across to this area over here, which is the Decapolis. Now, are we going to say the word Decapolis? Nope. We're going to say the other side. You're going to say a far country. You're going to talk about anything but say the word Decapolis. So the same author that we've talked about, Bargill Pixner, in his book, With Jesus Through Galilee, he's going to mention another option. Let me, let me walk you through this. It's, I have to give you a little bit of a Hebrew lesson. It's okay. You don't have to remember the word. Just know the concept. Part of the reason why I like Bargill Pixner is he lived for 12 years at the Sea of Galilee. He's not just studying it like in a university far away and reading text. He's on the ground. And I, that really makes a huge difference. And, and so part of what he does is he pulls all the early church traditions out and says, well, why, why was this tradition held? In his book, page 44 and 45, he makes the suggestion that there is a, it's based off of a Hebrew word. Now, you can say this. You're all muted. The Hebrew word is gerash. So you can say gerash. That helps. I put the Hebrew on here just for those who would watch the video later. Hebrew reads the opposite direction. Gerash. What does gerash mean? It means to drive out, to expel, or to cast out. In Hebrew, Hebrew language is all about the action. So everything's defined first by action. So you start with the verb, gerash. Now, if you want to change it to a noun, you just change the vowel sounds a little bit and it becomes a noun. So to drive out is the verb, one who is driven out 
is the noun. So what if we took the driven to drive out and we said, okay, here's garash, let's turn it into a plural noun. Well, in Hebrew, plural is im. You add that you add that suffix im. So now you would get the word garashim. And garashim starts to sound like garasin. Ah. Some people say gerushim, and I just wanted to put that, make sure you understand how it's written. It means the driven out ones. That's the region of the driven out ones. Now, where do they get that from? That's, we're not just making this up, right? So, for instance, don't turn there. I'm just going to read it to you. God says, God tells Moses and Joshua, I'm going to drive out those pagan nations ahead of you. And then you have to say, well, where did God drive those pagan nations to? And if you're living in Galilee in the first century, you point to the Decapolis and you say, right over there where the pagans live. So Exodus 34, 11, and you can read this later, but it's where you get the verb drive out. God says, observe what I command you this day. I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. So they're driven out. Those are the people who were driven out. Gerash, the Gerushim. Where were they driven out, right? If you're a school kid reading your Torah, Rabbi, Rabbi, where did those people go who were driven out by God? You point right over there to the Decapolis. That's the place where the pagans lived. And so what Bargill Pickner, and I'll show you another church father, suggests that if we read Mark 5, verse 1, it would read like this. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerushim, the expelled ones. So notice they're putting a euphemistic name on the, that region over there, the expelled ones. This happens when we take a Hebrew word, transliterate it into the Greek, and then look at it in English. And I want to give you one example because you all know of this one, and it helps us understand how we could get Gerusin out of Gerushim. So if you take a Greek or a Hebrew word, in this case, Gat Shemanim. Now we did a whole class on Gat Shemanim. Gat Shemanim. It's a press for oils. Shemanim. Notice it's plural. Im. What's a press for oils? It's an oil press. And the the, the two words, Gat Shemanim, press for oils gets turned into Gethsemane. You transliterate it into the Greek, the Greek goes into the English, and now Gethsemane looks different than Gethsemane, but it's the same thing. That's Gethsemane as a transliterated word. So it seems that what's happening here is, what's that region across the lake? We're going across the lake. We're not going to say Decapolis. It's the Gerushim the driven out ones, all those pagan nations that God drove out before us. They, he, they drove, him, drove them out. Where did they go? Right over there. There's something about this that fits. Now, let me give you one bit of evidence. This is one bit, bit of evidence that'll support the hypothesis of Gerushim, meaning the driven out ones. So, uh, we have a church father, Origen. Origen of Alexandria. And 
you can find his writings. Uh, I put the quote that I'm going to put on your screen here. It's uh, under number 10 on your sheet, almost at the very end. Um, Origen has a commentary on the book of John. And in the book of John, uh, there's a phrase which we'll look at, God willing, in a few weeks, uh, Bethany beyond the Jordan. What Origen is saying, sometimes taking a, a word that was in Hebrew, then putting it into the Greek, and then especially locations of things are often very difficult to be precise where they are now. What were they talking about? And he then rolls into an example, and he says, the example is just like in Mark, who puts in Gerasenes. And so now you th say, well, how do we figure this out? Because what Origen says, this is in the, er the early church, is different manuscripts have different words, which means we're a little confused. And then he just throws this comment out there, and this is the comment that really makes, helps us make sense of it. He says, now the meaning of Gerasa is the dwellers of the casters out. And so you, what does that mean, the dwellers of the casters out? That doesn't even make any sense to us. It's the place, the people who lived there, who dwelt there, were the ones who were cast out. Gerushim. So we have evidence from an early church father that this tradition existed, that this idea of the Gerushim, the expelled ones, right? So if we go across here, they went across the lake to the expelled ones, the Gerushim, or the driven out ones, the Gerushim, either one, driven out, expelled. So I just wanted to show you, where are we going? It's the driven out ones. Why? Ah, God drove out those pagan nations. Where did they go? They went across the lake. All right, don't go there. Pagan nations, we don't need anything to do with them, right? Okay, last, because here's what's pretty cool. And even Origen makes this, uh, he makes this comment in his commentary with John. One thing we notice about this whole story is there's a, there's a uh, theme of being driven out or cast out. So the people who live there, assuming that it's Gerushim, they're the driven out ones. The people who live over in the Decapolis, that's the driven out ones. When Jesus goes to the Decapolis, what happens to the demons? The demons are driven out. They're cast out. In fact, Mark uses the same uh, word, Greek word, that would be the equivalent of Gerushim. Don't cast us out. The demons are pleading with Jesus. Don't send us out of the region. Don't drive us out again. Then, after Jesus does the miracle, what happens to him? Well, the people come in and they tell him to please leave, and they drive him back out. So it's like the driven out ones become the ones that drive Jesus out. So he does the miracle. They freak out and say, please leave our area. Don't come back. So you get this. It's just an interesting little dynamic that's happening with the whole concept of somebody being driven out. So I just wanted to show you that. It's, it's, it's a lot of work to get there. You're, most of us are not going to read our Bible ever and get to this point. But I just want to show you how dynamic both the, the, um, the idea of using euphemisms to talk about locations, locations that are off limits. You don't say the word Decapolis, so you put in another word that would describe that people group out there. Then it just so happens that that's kind of the story that's going on here. All kinds of driving out that's happening. So this is what it would really, what I think, based on the fact that Origen uses that reference, that 
Jesus says, let's go to the other side. Then Mark would write, they went to the, to the region of the Gerushim. It describes the entire region of the Decapolis, the ones who were driven out. All right. Now, why is this important? Well, we'll look, we'll look next week. We have to look at this idea of clean and unclean and the Decapolis, and then watch the disciples. Then, what's the implication for us? If we're a follower of Jesus and there's clean and unclean, how do we act? Do we allow our disgust reflexes to govern the way that we treat other human beings? Which many people do. So this is, there's a real implication to understanding this, this concept, because Jesus is going to go into the place that nobody want, is to go. And of course, whenever Jesus touches somebody who's unclean, they become clean. It doesn't, it doesn't make him unclean. Uh, and I would argue the same thing with us, that to reach out to someone who we consider unclean doesn't make us unclean. It's We have the power of God through us to help make them clean in that, again, we're nested in a metaphor. Okay, that is the Sea of Galilee part three. Let me stop my share.